Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you, Pastor Dave and worship team. Good morning, Grantham Church. Have you ever, like, seen yourself in a video or maybe heard yourself in a recording, maybe like a, a, a home video or home recording, doing something, saying something, and you go back and you, like, you watch it, and you're, like, embarrassed? You know, maybe you didn't know you were on camera. Maybe you didn't know you were being recorded. Maybe you were talking in not so nice way to somebody. I, I remember when I was uh, a kid, probably, I don't know, around 10, 11 years old. I, I, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I remember this home video my, my mother took. And uh, my brother and I, who's, he's four years younger than me, we were playing soccer or something in the backyard. And he got upset or whatever, and I just kind of verbally went after him or whatever. I was, you know, he's like, oh gosh, you know, it's forever there for you to remember and to see. And uh, maybe you can think of something like that. Um, it seems a bit childish. You, know, you, you see that and you're embarrassed by that. And, and in some ways, Jonah chapter four is a little bit like that. And not just for Jonah, but for us, if we'll look in the mirror, if we'll look in the mirror. This morning we conclude our four-part sermon series, The Gospel According to Jonah. And honestly, I'm, I'm a little sad uh, about this being the end because I've enjoyed studying and teaching this fun but very sophisticated ancient comedy about a rebellious Hebrew prophet whose story is meant to challenge our own thinking and challenge our own attitudes about God's merciful and forgiving character as well as our stubborn refusal for ourselves to repent, to trust in his wisdom, and to join his mission of mercy. As we've seen throughout this series, and once again we'll see with this final chapter, it's through humor and irony and the unexpected that the author of Jonah, like any good comedian, wants his readers to laugh at what unfolds, but not because we're better than Jonah. <laughs> nope, nope. No, we just find it funny because it's not just about Jonah. It's also true of us. And so this literary approach to using humor to get past our defenses so we can hear the truth, repent of sin, and adjust our lives to God. That's what this book is trying to do. But before we go verse by verse through chapter 4 this morning, I'll just briefly summarize what we've covered so far. Remember Jonah lived in the 8th century B.C. in the time of the divided kingdoms. He was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel at the same time as the prophet Amos. And also Isaiah, Hosea, and Micah in the southern kingdom of Judah. As we heard last week, Assyria was a brutal and barbaric enemy of God's people, and they are threatening to expand their imperial rule into Israel, destroy their cities, and take the best of them into exile. And so when Jonah is called by God to go speak a prophetic word of coming judgment to his enemies in Nineveh, 
the capital city of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. He runs from God in the opposite direction. Now, if you're thinking about running from God, folks, uh, you can save yourself the trouble and learn from Jonah. All right? Learn from Jonah or from Johnny Cash, who's saying you can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. <laughs> and that's what happens with Jonah. He buys a ticket on a merchant ship full of pagan sailors who are headed for Tarshish, that symbol of a false Eden, 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. And Jonah thinks he's outwitted God, and he feels good about himself, and he falls asleep in the bottom of the ship. But then a violent storm comes. The sailors have never seen anything like it. You'll recall they just know they're all going to die. All they can do is toss over their supplies and cry out to their gods. But that doesn't appease any of the gods that they know. And that's when they discover Jonah asleep and unaware of the nightmare that they are all living. And after some questioning, Jonah admits that Yahweh, the God of the land and of the sea, is upset with him. But rather than repent, Jonah prefers death. Now you think about that for a minute. Rather than repent, Jonah prefers to die. So he tells the poor frightened sailors to throw him overboard. And in awe of Yahweh, they do so. They do it reluctantly. The storm stops. The pagan sailors repent. They worship Yahweh. And the pagans learn about the mercy of God, and Jonah learns that you can run, but you can't hide. In chapter 2, Jonah sinks down into the darkness, into the sea, falling, falling, sinking, sinking. And instead of encountering the feared mythological sea monster that Jews would have expected, Jonah is swallowed by a big fish that's sent by God, the Scripture tells us, to serve as a holding place for Jonah. It's there that Jonah prays. Will the belly of the beast be the end of Jonah or a new beginning, a rebirth? Well, we learned that Jonah's prayer, as pious as it may have sounded, was missing any signs of confession and repentance for what he had done. But yet God is merciful, isn't he? And he gives Jonah another chance to obey and follow through with his prophetic calling. And so after three days in the belly of the beast, God commands the fish to spit Jonah out on dry land. And this time, Jonah will arise and go to Nineveh. Last week in chapter 3, we saw that Jonah only gets one day into Nineveh, uh, a city that took three days, it tells us, to walk through it. So get that. He doesn't even get fully into the city before he proclaims a message that we have reason to believe wasn't the one that God actually gave him. All Jonah shouts is, 40 more days and Nineveh will be hapak. That's literally in Hebrew, to be overthrown or overturned. In other words, Jonah in his mind intends to say, prepare to die, you sorry suckers. <laughs> this is Jonah. Yeah, so it's clear Jonah hasn't really learned anything. To Jonah's surprise, the mercy of God went before him, we said last week, and his one-sentence sermon, five words in Hebrew, sparked a revival in Nineveh. The people all repent, and quickly the word reaches the king, who also repents. With not much to go on, the pagan king commands everyone in the city, including all of the animals, 
to adopt a humble posture of repentance, to turn from their evil and their violence, which they knew that they were guilty of. Jonah didn't tell them that. That, that was interesting, right? They already knew. They knew this about themselves. So maybe the king says, just maybe God will spare us all. And that's exactly what happens. The text says that God changed his mind and did not do as he intended, and certainly as Jonah wanted. And so, in an ironic and humorous way, Jonah's prophecy that Nineveh would be hapak, which can also, I told you, mean changed or transformed, had come true. The people of Nineveh did indeed change. Their city was certainly turned upside down by the work of the Spirit of God. And Jonah was happy? No, of course not. He wasn't happy, and today we'll finally hear why in a message entitled, Confronting the Jonah in You. Let's pray. Father, uh, we once again come to you in prayer. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Holy Spirit, open up our ears and our hearts. Set us free, Lord, from that which holds us in bondage to sin, to the flesh, to the devil. Challenge us, convict us, comfort us, Lord, with a, a, a correct an accurate portrayal and portrait of who you are, the God who's been revealed in Jesus. Do this, Lord. Speak to us, for your servants are listening. And all God's people said, amen. The book of Jonah, chapter 4. If you have your Bible, would you turn there? Chapter 4, we're going to go through that verse by verse. We have a church library. Did you know that? There were a lot of of good books. We keep some books out in the lobby, and then down the hallway there's a library, and I noticed Edie Asbury, our church librarian, had pulled a bunch of books on Jonah out, a lot of kids' books on uh, one, of the, one of the carts. And yesterday I was here for a wedding and I, I saw that. Oh, I was like, oh, I just noticed that. And so I picked up one of the books because this is, is, is pretty, you know, um, well to be expected when it comes to children's books and Jonah, whether it's Veggie Tales or, or another kid's book on Jonah. It, it usually butchers the story, to be honest with you, you know. I, it really presents Jonah as this guy who didn't really want to do what God wanted, but by the end of the story, all was good. Jonah had learned his lesson and just just leaves out chapter 4 completely because we don't want to tell kids a story like that. But I want to submit to you that I think kids can handle that and, and we need to pay attention ourselves as grown-ups uh, what the Lord is wanting to say to us through this chapter which ends, you'll see today, with a question. With a question. Let's look at chapter 4 beginning with verse 1. I'm reading from the New International Version. You just follow along with whatever uh, translation you have. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. What seemed wrong? God repented of what he intended to do. Nineveh, at least in this moment, is, is saved from the wrath of God. And this seemed very wrong, and Jonah became angry. Literally, literally the Hebrew says, this was a great evil to Jonah. You think about that. Jonah saw what God did as evil. Jonah saw God giving mercy to his enemies as an evil. Don't forget that. 
It says that he was literally hot with anger. Uh, in Hebrew, literally, it, it, is, it means long nostrils. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, I mean, he's furious. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, to Yahweh, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I said. Now, verse 2 here, this is, and you, you, there's so much here that I'm not going to have uh, time to go into as far as the layers and layers of stuff. I'm just going to point out some of the allusions to other Old Testament stories and other hyperlinks. The first one here in verse 2, was this not what we said? Does that sound familiar to you in your Old Testament? History? Is, was this not what we said? Were there no graves in Egypt that you would lead us out here to die? Does that sound familiar? Remember, Jonah isn't just an individual. Jonah represents the story of Israel. He, he represents Israel's attitude. And this is hearkening back to the time in which the Hebrew people are pinned up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is coming over the hill. They think, they think they're all going to die. They said, you Moses, you should have just left us in Egypt. Wouldn't that have been better? Isn't this what I said, Lord? Look what, look what Jonah continues to say. This is what I tried to forestall, to avoid by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew, I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God. You know, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. <laughs> you know, notice, we were never told that Jonah thought this way. We weren't given much of anything, right? When God called him, he just fled. Did Jonah actually say this? Or is Jonah being like many of us, who when we're really angry, we say illogical things and we try to, you know, make ourselves look good? You ever done that? Husbands and wives get in arguments it's like, I told you this would happen. No, you didn't. Well, I was thinking it. <laughs> Jonah clearly was at least thinking it. We're never told that Jonah said it, but it does reflect Israel's attitude. It does reflect his attitude here in verse two. And also notice that Jonah, Jonah quotes here, he says, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love. He, he is quoting from Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, but he doesn't include the last part of that verse. Look at that. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says, and he, the Spirit of God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And this is what Jonah leaves out. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for their sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. Now first, what does what does this verse mean? I want to try to shed some light on that. Um, I think one way we experience this today, we think of generational sins, whether it's genetic or just something habitual that we learn as children, we pick up the evil behaviors and patterns of our parents. And if we're not intentional about it and we don't bring the Lord into the picture, what do we do? We just keep passing it on. We keep passing it on. Secondly, this is also meant to be humorous. Wouldn't you expect that? Uh, this is an ancient comedy. The irony here of Jonah's great sulking <laughs> is that only a few generations into the future, 
And Nineveh, along with the Assyrian Empire, will fall. And it will be no more. We know this from history. That at some point, maybe the next generation, Ninevites repent of their repentance. (laughs) And they do return back to their evil and their violence. So at the time of the writing and the reading of this book, they would have known that. They would have known that. You see, Jonah isn't trusting the Lord here. Jonah doesn't want to, of course, believe and accept the mercy and grace of God, but he also doesn't believe that God will hold people accountable. Hmm. Thirdly, I think we should see that Jonah is being depicted here as an anti-Moses figure, where Moses wants to intercede for the people, remind God of his covenant and promise. Jonah could care less. Back to chapter 4, verse 3. He said, now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Just take me now, Lord. Just kill me. Verse 4, but the Lord, Yahweh, replied, is it right for you to be angry? Have you heard that question before in the Old Testament? Is it right for you to be angry? Why are you angry? This is an allusion to Cain, the first murderer in the scriptures. Verse 5, we'll come back to that. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. A lot going on here. Why would it tell us this, the east side of the city? This is another hyperlink to Cain, right? The brother of Abel. He killed his brother. You all remember this story, right? You'll recall that Cain rejected God's forgiveness and protection after he had done this, and he traveled, it says, east of Eden and built a city, a city for himself. So Jonah is likened again to Cain, and so Jonah makes a, a shelter, a sukkah in Hebrew, which for the Hebrew reader is symbolic of the Feast of Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles. This is when Israelites uh, enact a self-imposed exile where they would remember God's own protection and provision in the wilderness. For seven days, the families would build a little tent and go live in it. And they would recall how God had delivered them in the wilderness, how how they were exiled, but God delivered them. So, so, so follow this, what's happening, what this would have made the Hebrew reader think. What's happening here is that Jonah, like Cain, is only interested in building the world to his own liking. So Jonah builds his little shack, and he waits in hope. He's a front row seat to the destruction of Nineveh. I can just picture him popping his popcorn and having his Coke and just waiting for God to still possibly smite the Ninevites. Verse 6, then Yahweh God provided a leafy plant. Just like he appointed the fish, God is appointing a plant or a vine. He made it grow up over Jonah, up over Jonah. So this is also, Jonah has a shelter, and then this plant and vine grows up over the shelter. 
to shade his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. So again, notice God arranges, he appoints it just like the fish. The large plant or fast-growing vine grows over the top of Jonah's shelter. The plant is unknown. We don't know what plant this is. Uh, Kikayon is the Hebrew word. Kikayon, listen to that. Some scholars believe this is a made-up word that combines the Hebrew uh, kika, which means to spew or to vomit, and Jonah, kikayon, Jonah. <laughs> Maybe this is a made-up word kind of referring back to what had happened with the fish. Jonah is spewed out. And so this, this vine grows up, shades him. This is also referring to the many places in the Old Testament where God is the shade of his people. Now see what, see what happens here. God is setting Jonah up. It says that he, it eased his discomfort. Literally, literally, it, it means delivered him from his evil. Remember, Jonah thought it was evil. This is literally God sort of in the moment delivering from evil, God's mercy to the Ninevites. So Jonah was grateful. The New American Standard said he was overjoyed. And we need to notice this is the first time we see Jonah happy. The first time that we see Jonah happy is when he personally receives a blessing. God bless me, but you can kill all those other people. Never heard Americans talk like that. Verse 7. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm. In the Hebrew Scriptures, anytime you see at dawn or when the sun was rising, the pattern normally in the Old Testament is something good's about to happen. But remember, this is a book where the unexpected happens. Everything's turned upside down. Normally good things happen at dawn, but not here. A worm comes. The worm ate, literally destroyed. It destroyed this Eden-like plant. It destroys it. Two other times we see worms in the Old Testament. Worms that come uh, after they've, God said, don't accumulate the manna that I provide for you. If you accumulate the manna, what happens? If they take more than their daily bread, as we prayed this morning, it, it gets infested or whatever. It, it, it gets uh, polluted. Worms destroy it. That's one instance where we see worms in the Old Testament. The other is, is a curse for disobedience to the covenant. So this would signify the worms coming that Jonah has been disobedient and he's been faithless. He's been disobedient and he's been faithless. It chewed up the plant so that it withered. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God provided, this is like the third time, right? God appoints, he provides a scorching east wind. And anytime you see east wind, this has an, uh, ominous associations with divine judgment in the Old Testament. The wind blows away his shelter, exposing him to the heat of the sun. And look at Jonah's response here. It, it, the sun blazed on Jonah's head. He grew faint. He wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Hmm. Oh, Jonah. Verse 9, God said to Jonah, once again, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? You see, God is saying, are you really, Jonah, are you really going to be upset 
about the vine that I created. See, Jonah is furious. His real feelings are finally coming out. It's what, if you've been reading, you didn't jump ahead and you've been reading the story for the first time, you, you would say like, what is this guy's problem? What's, what, is, what is really troubling Jonah? And here it is. And God is saying, are you really gonna be upset about this? I mean, I created this vine and you're, you're more upset about this vine than you are at the possibility that I might destroy these people. It's absurd, it's childish, it's like a temper tantrum, that home video I was talking about. It's embarrassing, but Jonah doesn't see it. Jonah doesn't see it. Verse 11, listen to the words of God. He says, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people. The word in Hebrew there is Adam. Adam. Which is often translated as humans, human beings made in God's image. Over 120,000 people made in my image. You're concerned about a flipping plant. You're concerned about your own comfort, you're concerned about your own blessings, but not the fate of these people. God says, a people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. And in the scriptures, this is a way of saying these people are not morally discerning. Their moral compass is screwed up. They don't have the law. They don't know what I want and what I expect. So what do you expect? And God not only cares about over 120,000 people, by the way, why this number? It's written in an odd way in Hebrew. Literally, it says in Hebrew, 12 plus 10,000, which seems to be connecting the Ninevites to God's promise in Genesis 25 to bless uh, Ishmael. You remember the, the child of um, Hagar? Remember when Abraham tried to rush the plan of God, figured out his own way, took, took Hagar, the servant, slept with her? Remember, Sarah was all in that idea too. But God says, I'm still going to bless Ishmael, whose descendants had, in Genesis 25, tells us 12 rulers. 12 times 1,000, right? These people are not morally discerning. They don't have God's law, but God loves them. And look what else it says and how it ends. He says, these people can't tell their right hand from their left. Should I not have mercy on them, on these people, over 120,000, and also their animals? <laughs> this is where it ends. You see, God cares about the animals too. It's meant to be humorous, but notice the question. And I know you might be wondering this morning, I get that God is merciful and compassionate. I certainly get it for me. But where is the justice in this story? Where is the justice? How do we hold together justice and grace and compassion? Listen to what Philip Carey says in his commentary on Jonah. I think this is helpful for us. He says, we must be clear where Jonah gets it wrong. It's not as if 
We should never desire justice or even celebrate the wrath of God. It's good news when the oppressor is toppled, the terrorist is caught, and the torturer enjoys no impunity. The arrival of justice is heartening for the afflicted. For the afflicted. The great danger is that instead of rejoicing at the vindication of the afflicted, we self-righteously identify ourselves as the afflicted and the victimized. And we live in a culture today that wants you to adopt this victimization mentality. Taking pity on ourselves and not on others. So that in our imagination, the Lord becomes a weapon in our campaign to destroy our enemies and an instrument for our own vengefulness rather than the judge of the whole earth. And folks, this is not just a radical right-wing problem. It's also a leftist problem. Kerry goes on to say, God's aim is always to overturn the evil that destroys his creation. Listen to this. He says, he can accomplish this justly, Sure, by destroying the evildoer, but yet more justly and gloriously by turning the evil heart into something new. He changes his mind, as Jonah 3.10 says, in order to overcome evil with good, as Paul said in Romans 12, defeating evil in the abundance of his mercy, doing more, not less, than justice. Doing more, not less, than justice. That's good stuff. And that, my friends, is the power of God as seen through the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. It's central to our faith, isn't it? You see, only in the cross do we see both the justice and grace of God perfectly. Pay careful attention to this because the world says I can be just or I can be loving, but I can't be or do both. But the Lord, in his wisdom, displayed on Calvary, says otherwise. Says otherwise. But in order, you see, to experience this justice and grace of God and hold those in tension and in balance, we must patiently trust in God in our suffering. Patiently trust God in our suffering. Do you know, literally, the word in Latin for compassion, it literally means with suffering. Compassion, with coming alongside those who suffer and suffering with them. This is important to note. Here are a few more theological points from chapter 4 that I think need to be applied to our living as we think about the mercy and compassion of God, which we're being invited into. Number one, I see this at work in chapter 4. Our own pride and our self-centeredness and hate for our enemies can blind us to God's love. You know, this is the thing about spiritual evil and darkness that couldn't see the cross of Jesus as the ultimate weapon that would defeat evil, right? This really comes out in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. There's a scene where you see sort of what's going on in the unseen realms and Satan like cries out and screams after the crucifixion as if he had been fooled. 
How is it that he's full? How is it that evil is full? Because evil does not understand the wisdom and the power of God through the cross. Evil does not understand. And when your mind is bent toward the flesh and bent toward, this, toward sin and bent on I'm going to do what I'm going to do and I'm going to fashion God in my image, then you will not understand the wisdom, the justice, the mercy, the compassion of God. Evil doesn't get it. Evil doesn't see it coming. And this is what happens to Jonah. You know, Jonah, is, think about this. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Isn't Jonah like the anti-Good Samaritan? I actually think that Jesus probably created a couple of different parables based on the story of Jonah. We know that he had Jonah on his mind. We've referred to that a couple times in this series. Jonah is like the anti-Good Samaritan. He doesn't just walk by the beaten man. He, he hopes he dies. Like he walks by and spits on him. Also, God wanted to deliver Jonah from the mindset that showing mercy to his enemies is evil. Remember, Jonah thought that this is evil. God was trying to help him to see the truth, help him to see the light. But because of his own refusal to accept God's character, Jonah puts himself out from God's mercy and forgiveness. Think about it. Revival is happening in Nineveh. What does Jonah do? He leaves town. He puts himself out. He said, this is what happens when we say, God, I don't like the way you are. I don't like it that you're merciful. I don't like it that you're compassionate on my enemies. And so I'm just going to take my ball and go home. I'm just going to, I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave your will. I'm going to leave your plan. I'm going to go build my own city. I'm going to go do my own thing. And we put ourselves outside of the mercy and the grace and forgiveness of God. Right? This just reminds me, God sends nobody to hell. We choose it. We choose our own hell. <laughs> and this is exactly what Jonah has done. Why? His pride. His self-centeredness, his hatred for his enemies. It just consumes him, just as it can consume us. Second point, I see this in chapter 4. God wants us to trust his character and divine wisdom. He wants us to let him be our shelter. He wants us to let him be our shelter. Probably not what the Rolling Stones meant when they sang that song, but Jonah may have influenced, as I said, Jesus' parable, several of them, one of them being the prodigal son. You, you remember the older son? Remember the way he felt when young brother came home and daddy threw a party? This is Jonah. This is Jonah. You see, God wants us to trust the character of the good father who puts the ring on the finger, who kills the fatted calf, who runs, risking shaming himself to welcome the lost home, to save the Ninevites, to save all of our enemies, especially those that we hate. Third point, the Lord cares for all people who are made in his image, and he even cares for the animals. <laughs> My friends, this is an obvious, obvious condemnation of racism. It's an obvious condemnation of nationalism. It says God loves us and blesses us and likes other people a little less and maybe even hates them. 
It's also a condemnation of a tribalistic view of God, that somehow God favors us and other people less. It's also a rebuke against those who think the animal kingdom, as all empires seemingly do, whether it's from the Colosseum, you know, or other kinds of games, where we use animals simply for our own entertainment and exploitation. God cares about the 120 plus thousand made in his image, and he also cares for the creatures that walk and crawl the earth and swim the seas. So my friends, looking back over this story, think about the whole book of Jonah, what we've looked at. It turns out that what we see in Jonah is an inverted, I just think about turning inside out, an inverted portrait of the one who came to save us, the true portrait of the God who came to save us, save us, the God who looks like Jesus. And to be clear, as you, as you leave church today thinking about Jonah, here is the main point. Here's the main point. The main point of the book of Jonah is to expose as shameful something we all engage in but don't want to acknowledge that we do, both with God as well as with others. And also to put the question to us, Will we be like God in our mercy, grace, and compassion or not? Will we join his mission of mercy or not? Again, it ends with a question. Holding the mirror up to us. The God who looks like Jesus invites us to follow him and to respond in faithfulness. Remember the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus, folks, who said is himself greater than Jonah. In Matthew chapter 9 we read this wonderful passage here, sort of summarizing the ministry of Jesus. As Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, announcing the good news about the kingdom. He healed every kind of disease and illness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Spognizomai is the Greek word. It, it literally means his heart was wrenched, his, his, his gut was wrenched, his heart was ripped open. Compassion. Jesus came alongside to suffer with them because they were confused and they were helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to them, to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest also to send more workers into his fields. That God would raise up and send out people who understand, accepted for themselves, and want to share with others the mercy, the grace, and the compassion of God. Before, because if God doesn't have mercy and compassion on the Ninevites, then he can't have mercy and compassion on me. <laughs> Listen to this excerpt from a poem from Thomas John Carlyle. I think this sums up Jonah really well. He says... And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonahs in their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. 
To close this message in our series, let's reflect on these following questions as we confront the Jonah in ourselves. Number one, where do you see Jonah in you? Be honest. You got to be honest, folks. You got to be honest with yourself. Where do you see Jonah in you? Are you angry with God? Wanting God to be something else, more like you, maybe? Are you, are you hating some people? <laughs> are you only wanting mercy and blessing for you? Maybe, maybe you've been thinking tribalistically about, you know, your ethnicity. Maybe about your country. And the Lord is trying to tell you something this morning. Number two, do you need to repent and trust in God's character and compassion? Let this story be a warning to us all not to end up like Jonah. We don't have to live like Jonah. We don't have to have his attitude. God can transform our hearts. Number three, how is God inviting you to follow Jesus? and join his mission of mercy. Maybe there's a specific, practical, tangible way. Maybe God has brought into your mind something that you've been thinking or ways that you've been living that doesn't reflect the God who looks like Jesus. Or maybe he's put on your heart and mind some people that you have viewed as Jonah has viewed the Ninevites. And God is inviting you to change. He's inviting you to be overturned and transformed. Because ultimately, you're only hurting yourself. Ultimately, you're putting yourself outside of the city that is experiencing revival. Don't do it, folks. Don't do it. Finally, our last post-teaching segment in this series. Uh, Each week in our Jonah series, as most of you know, we have invited someone from the congregation to share what they'll be doing this time tomorrow. And this has been able, uh, we've been doing this to help us to be able to connect the story of Jonah to our everyday lives as a way to bridge our faith on Sunday to Monday and the rest of the week. This morning we've invited Ann Hudson uh, to come and share with us. Ann, would you welcome Ann, please? How are you doing? Nervous. <laughs> it's okay. They're not as scary as they look. I got two questions for you. All right. The first one, where will you be this time tomorrow at 11.33? I'm retired, so honestly, I really know. It's Memorial Day, so I'll be preparing. But um, I'll also be preparing for some classes I'll be teaching, even though I'm retired. Yeah. Um, my daughter works with Catholic Charities, working with uh, immigrants and English as a second language. And she got me involved as an, a volunteer, and then they needed a teacher, so now I'm teaching st- immigrants and refugees uh, the English language. They're from Mali, uh, Ukraine, Haiti, all the troubled areas, Sudan, all the troubled areas of the world. It's all online. Wow, that's amazing. And what languages do you speak for people that don't know? French and German and a little Spanish. (laughs) Okay. And Anne, the second question, how can we pray for you as you engage in God's mission of mercy? Well, you you said about the pain and tomorrow's Memorial Day. I was in Normandy a few weeks ago, and we saw the graves of the men who died for us. And thinking about that, I'm thinking about the war-torn people that are coming here. 
pray for them. Yeah. I've had some students pray for their, ask mm. me to, us to pray for their countries and so yeah. on. Yeah, so you can yeah that's good. That's heavy stuff. It is. That's heavy stuff, it but is. we do need to pray. Let's do that now. Let's pray, folks. Father, we lift up Anne to you, and we're just so thankful for the work and the ministry that you're doing through her, especially as she's helping immigrants and refugees and the like. Lord, would you empower her as she does this work? And we pray for them, mm. Lord, folks that have known evil and violence like we can only imagine and we've only seen in the movies. Lord, but right now we want to come alongside them in spirit with a co-suffering love. We know that it hurts and aches your heart. We know that you grieve with them. And Lord, we know that you are calling your church all over the world to be your hands and your feet, to be agents of your mercy, grace, and compassion. So, Lord, help us to say yes where Jonah said no. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) You did good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, I hope that you've enjoyed the Jonah series, and I do want to invite you after the service if you have thoughts or questions or you want to you know, come down front and talk to me or maybe send me an email and be happy to, to discuss whatever God has been saying to you or questions, answer questions that you have. This has, been, this has been good. It's been fun. It's been challenging though, right? Like this is a challenging book, but one that we need to hear if we're going to be faithful to Jesus in the 21st century. Amen? Amen. Grantham Church, how is God inviting you to join his mission of mercy? Let's not be like Jonah. Let's be like Jesus, the son of compassion. Amen. Amen. Father, I pray your blessings on this congregation as we seek to be agents of new creation, as we seek to be your hands and your feet to a lost and hurting world. Help us to believe in the power and the wisdom and the love and compassion of the cross. Help us to trust you with justice so that we might be freed up to love people as you have loved us. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.